Well, amen. Let's look at the book of Revelation today. Revelation chapter 2. Just a couple of reminders. Uh, committee meeting, uh, meetings January 13th, the mission committee at 9. That would be the missions coordinator, the deacons, and the pastor. And the budget committee at 9.30. Uh, and the budget committee is the deacons, the trustees, the treasurer, the super, Sunday school superintendent, and uh, the um, representative from the congregation, which is Kathy Cooey. Uh, then we're going to have the nomination committee on the 20th at 9 a.m. And that is the deacons and the pastor and then the board meeting at 930. Um, so we're looking forward to that to get squared away for this next year. Um, there's no men's prayer breakfast this Saturday, uh, but there is going to be a uh, teardown of the Christmas decorations. So if you can help helps take uh, things down and put them away, that would be a big help. Uh, January the 6th, this Saturday at 10 a.m. And lunch will be provided for you if you'd like. Um, Philathia class, January 23rd, that's not coming until later. Then the soup supper at 6 o'clock on the 24th as the annual business meeting at 7 o'clock. So we're going to have a good time this, this month and even have a teen activity planned in January. And so more information about that coming. Hopefully we'll get that squared away and <laughs> keep that going So uh, for the rest of the year. Yeah, I need snow. <laughs> need a snow activity, huh? No, I, I kind of don't have much hope for that. So, <laughs> All right, Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. I didn't open my Bible while I was talking. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 12 through 17, and we're talking about the church in Pergamos now. In our introduction of the seven churches of Asia Minor, we described the church at Pergamos as a faltering church. Uh, we used, uh, gave you a chart that had uh, from uh, Phillips, John Phillips, uh, from his book on Revelation, and had different descriptions of the churches there. Uh, prophetically, we described the church as a patronized church, being <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> being patronized by false belief systems. Uh, and then Pergamos was the capital of Asia Minor. Uh, it was on a rocky hill uh, from which you could see the Mediterranean Sea, but uh, it was not uh, on the sea. It was not a seaport. It's about 15 to 20 miles away from the, the Mediterranean Sea about 100 nor miles north of Ephesus, and still exists today in Turkey as Bergamos, uh, with a B instead of a P, and, uh, but it's still there. Uh, it was a city known for its intellectualism. Uh, they had a library with over 200,000 200, rolls of parchment, very large uh, thing. Uh, they, Egypt was providing some paper for that and they decided to stop because it was rivaling their library and they decided to stop providing parchment for them and so they stayed they, uh, came up with a style of parchment that was from animal skins and uh, created their own and it became very famous worldwide and uh, they ended up having 200,000 rolls uh, then uh, Cleopatra came along and uh, the people the Roman uh, emperor at the time uh, was infatuated with her and gave the entire library to Egypt. <laughs> and so uh, just a little piece of trivia there for you. If you ever are doing trivia pursuit and wonder what happened there, you'll know. And uh, you can thank me later. Um, but anyways, uh, I like books. I guess maybe that was why I thought it was interesting. I don't know. 
But the city was uh, given over to Greek idolatry worship and uh, pa uh, pagan deities such as Athena, uh, Bacchus, and Zeus. Uh, the, in fact, the altar of Zeus was discovered and put back together, and you can actually visit it in Berlin. Berlin, The stairs going up to the altar and a giant uh, altar there. And this would have been around this time frame that this book was written. Uh, and Jesus addresses the church here uh, in chapter 2 as uh, describes himself as he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So let's look at, uh, look at these verses here real quick. Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now let's look at this uh, passage here. First of all, we look at Roman numeral 1, the commendation for the church. We see this in verse 13. He does have some good things to say about this church, and that's, that's a relief. Uh, it's always bad whenever he only has bad to say. But verse 13, it says, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest. Excuse me, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And uh, what, what, what was the good that he had to say? First of all, he had uh, commended them on letter A. Uh, they held fast to Christ's name. Uh, they held fast to Christ's name. Uh, that says, I know thy works, that thou holdest fast my name. And they were in Satan's seat. Uh, this is a highly intellectual city. It was given over to ecumenical thought. Every religion had its place in the city. And it wasn't like uh, the previous city we studied that uh, they uh, only allowed certain uh, religions and they required everybody to worship the emperor. Uh, this one held the door wide open to every religion. Uh, but the Christians held to their persuasion of Christ's deity. Uh, in Council of Nicaea, during 325 A.D., um, a man named Arius said Jesus was the highest form of created beings. Uh, but the council determined Arius was wrong. This was held in Turkey, um, and it was around uh, the time frame of the persecution that, that they uh, were talking about here as well and the time for what's going on in the church. Um, and so they, he was trying to say that Jesus was a created being. Uh, he wasn't God. He was created by God. That's still going on today. Uh, Mormonism teaches that. Uh, I, think, I believe Jehovah's Witness also teach that. <coughs> they at least believe that he's not God. <coughs> uh, 
Um, even some Pentecostal movements believe he was created by God, that he had not always existed, only existed eternally in the, in the mind of God rather than, than an actual being uh, in, with God. And uh, so there are still some false teachers that are teaching this kind of philosophy. And uh, this may have been, it's quite possible that this was the kind of false theology that uh, they were dealing with there. Um, interestingly, um, even as the council defended Christ's deity, it was presided over by a Roman emperor, Constantine, uh, which ended up opening the door for establishment of papal Rome. Uh, and so even though they were uh, comment, uh, agreeing with the church to stand for fast on Christ's name, uh, they uh, were on the other side bringing in falsehood on the other side. Not necessarily this church, but the church as, a whole, uh, as uh, the councils together. Um, but Satan hates the church, and this city is where Satan based his home. And the word translated seat is actually the word thronos, uh, which is where we get our word throne from. Um, and it is the basis of his work against God. Uh, boy, what a place for a church, amen? Uh, and this is exactly where they built this church. Uh, is it any wonder that the city is the center uh, for such idolatry when you have the throne of Satan there and the seat where false doctrine began to seep into the church? Um, but they, this church, they held fast to Christ's name. Secondly, uh, they didn't renounce the faith. They didn't renounce the faith. Verse 13 again, it says, it continues and it says, Hast not denied my faith, even in those days where, where an Antipas was a faith, my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Uh, the time period in church history represented by Pergamos was, is uh, 325 to 500 A.D. Uh, during this time, there was a lot of persecution. Uh, however, there was uh, 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 there was. The persecution had begun to wane off as uh, during, during this time frame, Const, um, Constantine became the emperor, converted to Christianity, um, and uh, then ended up leading the church into false doctrine, and uh, as we see it continue through time into what is now the Catholic Church today. Um, and any, but anybody who did not agree with the direction of the doctrine were persecuted. Um, and so there, were, there was still persecution for those who stood firm on, what God, well, on the word of God and their belief of God. And, uh, but that was the vice of the Roman Catholicism at, through the years, is that many who did not submit to the dogma of Rome were murdered. Um, and we see that throughout history. Antipas is mentioned specifically in this verse. Uh, Antipas was a first century saint who is believed to be the pastor here in Pergamos. Uh, uh, pre, just prior to the writing of this, uh, and uh, he was the he was the pastor there, and he was martyred. Uh, he was martyred by being slowly roasted in, uh, in fire, inside uh, by being placed in a brass bowl um, because he wouldn't renounce Christ. And uh, so this is around this time, or shortly, uh, right, well, right around this time of the writing of, of Revelation. Uh, the church kept their faith, even in the midst of persecution, even uh, in the midst of what this church went through and losing their pastor like that. And God commends them for uh, not renouncing their faith, even when severely persecuted like this. And they were commended for that. But Jesus gives some word of correction, though. 
so Roman numeral two, we see now the contention against the church. I almost said condemnation of, against the church, but uh, they didn't really, he doesn't condemn them. He just uh, contends with them and points out where they're going wrong. <coughs> but verse 14, we see this. He says, but I have a few things against thee, uh, because thou hast there, there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, uh, who taught Balak uh, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And there were people uh, who were being accepted into this church that were believing and accepting of, and maybe even trying to spread, false doctrine. And the believers had begun to compromise with two major doctrines. Hebrews gives us a warning about this kind of thing. Hebrews 13.9 says, Be not carried away, uh, carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have, no, not, profit, uh, have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And he talks about not being carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. You know, there, the Bible tells us there's no private interpretation. I don't think I put this verse in my notes, but there's no private interpretation of Scripture. Uh, you're not going to have somebody come along and God only whispers to them uh, the true meaning of Scripture. The uh, Bible warns us directly against that. Uh, and so uh, where if we come up with an interpretation of a verse that is nobody else has, uh, has seen, you might want to look at it again. <laughs> And it's just a good clue. In 2,000 years of church history, uh, that, then possibly there's something there about that. Uh, there's, there are doctrines that uh, we have been accused of uh, having new since the 19th century. Uh, but if they truly looked at history and the writings of the forefathers, uh, the early church fathers, they would see that those doctrines in there. And just through the years, uh, very, it seems like every century almost, there's an emphasis of, doc, of a particular doctrine. Uh, somebody is trying to stray away from the doctrine, so you see a bunch of writing about that doctrine there in that century. And uh, it's still happening today. I remember it seems like it happened in decades. And when I, uh, while I was in Bible college and just in such, you know, you'd hear people emphasizing different aspects of theology. And uh, that was a big deal right at that moment. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, you know, and so once somebody starts to kind of peel away and uh, come up with their own theology or own ideas, uh, then the church bands together and says, no, this is why this is wrong. And uh, so that's why a lot of times you don't see a ton of writing about some of those doctrines, but you do see them. Uh, they are there. Um, but anyways, uh, we have to be careful not to be carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. And James is clear that friendship with the world uh, and uh, the life in Christ are incompatible. And uh, this is one of the things that they were struggling with here, uh, was <coughs> wanting to allow the world into the church and condone some worldly actions. And James 4.4 4 tells us, ye adulterers and adulteresses, some strong words, isn't it? And he says, you know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. You are the en enemy of God if you try to be a friend of the world. He said, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Satan couldn't destroy the church head on. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so instead he infiltrated the church. 
and began to try to cause schisms and uh, false theology. He began to slowly remove the effectiveness of the Christians through their false friendship with Christ and their friendship with the world. The word Balaam here is a form of the Hebrew word meaning to destroy the people or destroyer of the people. And the Greek word Nicolaitan in the next verse comes from two Greek words meaning to conquer the people or conquer of the people. The two words basically mean the same thing. Uh, one, the Hebrew name that brings back to mind what happened in the Old Testament with the man Balaam. The other Greek word or name uh, that some believe is connected to the establishment of the clerical rule of the church or lording over the church. And uh, there's little or little to no historical evidence for a sect of the, called the Nicolaitans in church history. Uh, there are many that uh, that say that the Nicolaitans were a sect that uh, that did such and such, but we don't really find that in historical records uh, particularly. Um, in fact, it's only mentioned in this passage and one other uh, uh, mentions this word, both found in Revelation 2. Uh, and first, uh, let's look at one, the first doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam, uh, the principle that we can learn from that, first of all. Verse 14, it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Balaam was a prophet of God, uh, but he loved gold. Uh, Balak sent men to Balaam to convince him to curse Israel for him. Uh, but the Lord told him no, he couldn't, could not go with these men to curse Israel. Uh, Balak sent more and uh, more men to Balaam to try to tempt him with riches. Uh, but said, he said he could not go no matter how much they gave him, even if they fill his house with silver. Uh, he could not go if God does not, allow it, uh, does not allow it. And that night God told Balaam to go with the men if they asked him to go again. But he could only say what God told him to say. So Balaam goes with the men. Now, there's no indication that he waited for the men to ask him again. Uh, in fact, God is angry with him that he went. Uh, and so people have asked, you know, why did God give the okay for him to go and then is angry with him and wants to kill him uh, the next day because he went? Well, it's because he told them to go if they asked him to go again. Uh, and there's no indication that there is. In fact, the fact that God is mad is an indication that they didn't ask. <laughs> and he went anyways, most likely out of greed. Uh, and this was where on this journey an angel is sent to prevent Balaam from going. And in fact, he was going to kill him. But Balaam's donkey saw the angel and refused to go. And Balaam beat the donkey three times, uh, trying to get it to go, uh, keep going down the road. But then God gave the donkey the ability to speak, and it said, What have I done unto, uh, done to you that you have struck me these three times? Can you imagine? You know, riding a donkey, and all of a sudden it starts to talk to you. But the crazy thing is, Balaam doesn't even seem to react to that. He just answers the question, you know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you'd be so surprised you'd just answer too. I don't know. But basically, Balaam sa uh, says that it's because he wasn't doing what he wanted to do. This donkey wasn't doing what he wanted to, it to do. The donkey replied that she had been his donkey all of his life and had never refused to do what he wanted to do before. So why, uh, why is he beating her now? You know, and uh, maybe you ought to pay attention. And uh, she must have had a reason, she was saying. Sure enough, God opens his eyes and he sees the angel there 
awaiting him and uh, wanting to kill him, but the donkey saved his life. And uh, because Balaam repented of what he planned to do, most likely to curse Israel for the king, the angel said, go ahead and go with the men, but only say what the Lord tells you to say. He did as the Lord told him and blessed Israel instead of cursing him. And Balak took him to another place. The king Balak took him to another place and said, here, let's go over here and talk. And he asked him to curse him again. And I don't know, maybe he thought he could get away from the Lord if he moved to another location. I don't know. But he tried again. And again, Balaam blessed Israel, didn't curse them. Balak tries again a third time and takes him to yet another place. And maybe it'll work from here. And, uh, but it didn't work. Balaam blessed Israel. And then the Bible says that he went home. However, at some point... He must have approached Balak, the king of the Moabites. And he suggested that the way to defeat Israel was to have the Moabitess women seduce Israel's men and lead them into idolatry through fornication and idolatry. Numbers 31.16 says, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord because of it. Balaam's motto was, if you can't curse them, corrupt them. And uh, so he said, if we get them from underneath, you know, know, corrupt them from the inside out, then it will make the difference. And when Israel took the land in Joshua 14, they took Balaam's life with a sword. And he was killed for what he did. God did not want the church tolerating compromise here, now in Revelation uh, many times in churches, there are people who knowingly and openly sin, and it's never dealt with. And God gives a plan for church discipline, and the purpose of this is reconciliation. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained, gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verse 18 says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shall be loosed in earth, on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The purpose of church discipline, the purpose that Jesus was teaching there was reconciliation. That was his heart. Man with God and man with man. Reconcile all of the relationships. But when the offending party refuses to repent, the plan is to cut them off from the church eventually, once you go through all of the steps. I've been in churches that practiced uh, inappropriate church discipline. And when they, somebody said something uh, or went to uh, talk to somebody uh, that uh, the pastor felt like they shouldn't go talk to about advice, they called them up on stage and announced to the church what happened, and this person was being disloyal. It was spiritual abuse, and uh, skipped a massive number of steps, (laughs) you know, and that kind of thing ought not happen in the name of God, amen? And uh, that's dictatorship, Uh, and that is not what God uh, intended at all. 
the intention was reconciliation, not humiliation. And but when the offending party does refuse to repent all along those steps, then the Bible tells us to cut them off from the church. Don't fellowship with them. And we can't allow false doctrine or compromise to, or sin to enter the church and defile the church. Many teach today it doesn't matter how, how you live as long as you believe right. And this isn't true. God is concerned about how you live. And we can't allow sin to enter the church. And we're talking about open, uh, you know, if somebody, you know, how, how, you know I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have sinned today? Amen? No, raise your hand. You know, we're not talking about, you know, just, you know, sin. Okay? We're talking about rebellious, unrepentant, open sin. Okay? And uh, they refuse to repent. Okay? And uh, so if that's the case, then something has to happen. And we can't allow sin to enter the church. Then there was a second doctrine mentioned, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. It says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The name means to conquer the people. Some, will, uh, some interpret these two verses as being the same uh, doctrine, uh, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Nicolaitans. And I, I'm not going to fight with them by any means. Uh, but I do think that there is a, uh, a possibility of some other uh, uh, meaning here in a separate doctrine idea, doctrinal idea. And so that's what I'm presenting here, not as a dogmatic fact, uh, but uh, something that, that does make sense to me at least. Uh, but the name means to conquer the people. And it's believed that the Nicolaitans made the, ch the clergy the channel to God, uh, denied the headship of Christ and the priesthood of the believer. And this led to the bishop rule of the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, one, uh, there were leaders that were bringing in sin into the church and defiling the church from, uh, from within inside. Uh, this was kind of taking over the church uh, and lording over the church. And from this concept came the belief in the, in the priesthood or the clerical rule of the church. Uh, from, from that decision uh, came, by the way, that was during that, uh, this... Um, this time frame that uh, that first century that that decision was made, um, which is why one reason why uh, some believe that this, the, when it's talking about the Nicolaitans, it's talking about this. Uh, but from this decision came many other op things, you know, and prayer from the prayer for the dead in 300 A.D. 375 A.D. is the worship of saints, uh, uh, put them on on a higher status than everyone else. Um, uh, 394 need to go to daily mass. Uh, 500 A.D., priests wear special clothing. Uh, 543 A.D., the doctrine of purgatory came from uh, these false ideas. Uh, 600 A.D., prayers to Mary, another mediator uh, that was needed. And many more false doctrines uh, kind of went just in, in lockstep uh, from this first, or at least one of the first moves away from the truth. And probably more uh, because the door was opened. But one of the main tenets of Baptist theology and doctrine is the priesthood of the believer. Uh, every believer has access to God. Amen? First uh, John chapter 2, verse 27 says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. He is our teacher. Uh, 
And uh, we don't need another mediator. There is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And, uh, but those who wish to lord over their church push this snake-latent system of belief. And uh, when man is the head of the church, the dogma changes. Uh, when Christ and the Bible are the head of the church, there's constancy through, through, through the thousands of years. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And uh, so, you know, you have uh, a lot of times whenever people look at church history, they uh, view uh, Catholic church, and then every once in a while there's a, a branch off. But the truth is you can see a line of people that have uh, been out of the, outside of the false theology all along. They came by different names throughout different centuries. Uh, the Waldensians, the Antibaptists, the, or Anabaptists, the uh, rebaptizers at times. And uh, there were um, Swingley in Sweden uh, uh, had a, a group of people, I don't remember what they were called right off. Uh, but, you know, and all these different, throughout the, all the ages, you can see these groups of people that stood against the false theology, that the, the change that had been made through time. And we have to be careful against that. Don't let any false theology come in. The role of the pastor was never meant to place one man above another. Uh, we are equal at the foot of the cross. Uh, I have no extra special uh, power or extra special anything than you have. Amen? The Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that lives within me that lives within you. And, that, and by God's grace, the same grace uh, we both have. And uh, the uh, name pastor itself describes the function, uh, not a position, not a, not a position of hierarchy. And uh, it's the, the function is to lead the flock. And the word elder, and bishop, and overseer, and pastor were used interchangeably uh, to describe the function of the roles, uh, not a higher position. And uh, so don't get your doctrine from a man. Get your doctrine from the Word of God. Amen? And anywhere where I veer away from the Word of God, believe the Word of God. Amen? And stick to that. Uh, people come to me at times and say, well, I don't really agree with you uh, about this. And I'm like... Okay, if I can show you from the Word of God how that, what, I, what I believe is true, then I'll try to do that. Uh, but I'm not going to be mad at you. Amen? And uh, I want you to, st if you can see from the Word of God where I'm wrong, then convince me, first of all. <laughs> but because uh, uh, I want to be right. Uh, I wouldn't believe something if I knew I was wrong. Amen? Uh, but, uh, you know, I want to stick to the Word of God as my sole source of information. Uh, but at the same time, the, uh, there is a sense of authority that the pastor has. First uh, Thessalonians 5.12, it says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And the biblical requirements of a pastor include in 1, Thessalonians, 1 Timothy 3, uh, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. He says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Uh, for later in chapter 5 of that same book, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially them who labor in the word and doctrine. It talks about ruling well. 
Uh, it's not a lording over. It's not, I, you have to do what I tell you to do. It's uh, just the guiding of the church, the shepherding of the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that uh, they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. These verses don't give the pastor absolute authority. Rather, it is written as a caution to those who hear the teaching of the word of God, and they need to hear the, to, to listen to the teaching of the word of God carefully. And uh, to the God, uh, listen to those whom God has placed uh, over you to teach you. But the pastoral authority is limited. It only goes as far as the teaching of the word of God. Uh, once the pastor steps outside of what the word of God teaches, he has lost his authority. And why? Because God is the ultimate authority. Amen? And he is always right, and we always do what he tells us to do. Let God be true and every man a liar. Okay? And so uh, when a pastor steps outside of the boundaries of the word of God, they no longer have authority. And by the way, behind both false te doctrines, the Balaam and Nicolaitans, was the desire to deceive the believers. Uh, so Jesus praises the church for what they're doing right here, uh, their commendation, and then he lets them know what they're doing wrong. And he has a contention with them. Now Jesus offers them what they need to know, uh, what they need to do now, the correction for the church. Roman number three. He says in verse 16 and 17, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in, a, and in the stone a, name, a new name written, which it, no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Uh, what is the correction given to the church? First of all, uh, the first correction, letter A, is the need to repent. They need to repent. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, it's a call to turn from compromise and to commitment. Commit to doing right. Turn from idolatry, immorality, spiritual infidelity, and turn to doing what's right, what is God wants you to do. God uses the word he, uh, he that hath an ear. It's personal. Uh, we personally need to repent. Uh, any, any area where we have pulled away from the word of God, we need to repent, change the direction, change our mind. But he also uses the word churches, plural. Uh, it's for all the churches to hear. And God needs us to repent uh, uh, corporately as well. It's both personal and corporate. And the call is for the church and the pastor and the people to repent. And Jesus says he will come and fight with the sword of his mouth. And Jesus introduces himself in verse number 12 at the beginning here of this, uh, this section to this church. Uh, he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The word of God is the weapon that's used against false doctrine. Amen? We don't need any other weapon but the word of God to fight false doctrine. And stick to the truth of God's word. And God will cleanse his church with the word of God. There's a chapel in Germany with his, with his transcription, inscription, excuse me, uh, in the stone. I don't know what the church was going through, but they must have been going through something, I think. Uh, but they, in their stone, they, it says, You call me master and obey me not. 
You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and yet you follow me not. You call me fair and you, and you love me not. You call me rich and you ask me not. You call me eternal and you seek me not. And if I condemn thee, then blame me not. Blame me not. Amen. What a reminder. Amen. Uh, if we continue to ignore the word of God, uh, don't blame him if he comes with that swift sword. It's so easy to give God lip service. Oh, I love you, God. Uh, but we really love gold. We really love pleasure. We really love the world. And Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So the call is to repent and keep your eyes on Jesus and do right. Secondly, the call is uh, for a promise of reward. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And to him that overcometh, this promise is made. And this is not the super-Christians, okay? This is the true believers. First okay? John 5, 4 through 5 tells us, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. We are all overcomers, Amen. We're conquerors through Christ. And he, he who holds fast to that faith and truly believes, uh, you know, uh, will have that, uh, be that overcomer. But the Bible is clear that there are people who believe that they are believers, but they're not. Matthew 7, tells us, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. I know a few televangelists that sounds, that sounds familiar. But anyways, uh, he says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And the rock is Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He gives some promises here. First, he gives uh, the promise of hidden manna. Uh, for those who declined Balaam's compromise, God would give spiritual food. And John 6, 48 through 51 tells us, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Who is the manna? Jesus Christ. The overcomer has eternal life. Uh, then he promises a white stone. For those who refused false teaching, a white stone. Uh, white stones were used in the, this culture to whom this church was written in various ways and at various times. Uh, we don't know exactly which way he was intending, but I think all of them have a, uh, some application to us either way. <laughs> Uh, in, the, in, excuse me, in the ancient courts, a black stone meant guilt and a white stone meant acquittal. 
And if this is the meaning, we're declared not guilty, amen, by giving us a white stone. In the Greek games, the victors of the games would receive a white stone. This stone was a symbol of pride and a symbol of that they had won, and it was their ticket into the feast celebration, uh, that they had, the celebrating all the winners. That was their ticket in to present that stone. If this is the meaning, we're victorious and invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? Uh, in those days, a white stone was also given to those who showed hospitality to a foreigner. The host would be given that stone back if they were ever in their country uh, and uh, as a reminder of the hospitality that was shown to them and they would open their house and feed them and take care of them. If this is the meaning, we have housed Jesus in our hearts and now we go to his home and uh, he gives us that stone as a reminder uh, of what he has done for us. Either way, uh, no matter how way, way this is used or another way altogether that we don't know. After all, on the stone is written a new name that no man knows. <laughs> so it may be something completely different. But this new name is written. Not a new name as in comparison to old name, but a new name as in a different quality. Uh, it's a deep uh, person. Um, I didn't finish my thought there, so I have no idea what I was going to say there. But, uh, but anyways... Uh, what, you know, what is this new name that he's going to give? Truth is, nobody knows. I don't know. Jesus said himself, no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. I mean, we may not, not know until we get to heaven. Uh, but uh, here in this uh, letter to this church, uh, the doctrine of Balaam is mentioned. And, uh, you know, that compromise abounds still today. Uh, don't compromise with the world. Someone once said, so much of the world is in the church, and so much of the church is in the world, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. And we're to be different. Uh, we're to be separate from this world. What is the world? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 tells us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he describes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust of the flesh, the passions and desires. God created many of those desires for us, but outside of his framework for those desires, it becomes sin, and it becomes the lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes deals with our possessions. I got to have that. I got to have that. A materialism type of thing. It, and seeing things that are not yours. And pride of life focuses on position, uh, focus on me. And so the passions, the possessions, and the position. Uh, don't let the world infiltrate your life or your church. Don't compromise. If you find that the Holy Spirit comes to you and convicts you, repent. Amen? Change. Turn around. Uh, somebody, uh, I think it was Billy Sunday said, uh, some of you getting your cat rubbed the wrong way. Just turn the cat around, the, rub, the fur the wrong way. Just turn the cat around. Amen? Uh, you know, we just need to repent. Uh, you know, old hymn says, nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed fa face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear, let nothing between. Says nothing between my soul and the Savior, not of this world's delusive dreams. And tries to get it to us and show us a dream for something that we don't need. It says, I have renounced all sinful pleasure. 
Jesus' mind, there's nothing between. Nothing between like worldly pleasure, <clears throat> habits of life, though harmless they seem. Must not my heart from him ever sever? He is my all, there's nothing between. Nothing between like pride <clears throat> or station. Self-life or friends shall not intervene. Though it may cost me much tribulation, I am resolved there's nothing between. Last verse says, nothing between ere many hard trials. Though the whole world against me convene, watching with prayer and much self-denial, I'll triumph at last with nothing between. Amen? And may that be our, uh, what, what we pray as well. Let nothing between uh, our soul and the Savior. Well, let's take some prayer requests, and we'll go to prayer today.